The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all round, and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil, and anoint the tabernacle, and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furniture, so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering <clears throat> and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar, so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and you shall wash them with water, and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent of the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And as he erected the court round the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court, so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, 
the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. If you can keep that reading there before you, that'll be really helpful. Hopefully as you came in, you got one of those A5 sheets that will have that on there. It'll also have some dig deeper questions during the week um, and some daily reflections as well. So you can continue to think about this beyond uh, this morning. This morning, we come to the end of our journey through the book of Exodus with this tent going up. And I wonder how you feel about camping. Some of you perhaps may sort of love that. You may look forward to the moments where you can get away somewhere um, quiet and, and to do that. Others of you may hate it. My wife is really not a fan of camping. We've been once, and I don't think that was enough to convince her otherwise. She hated every element of it, really. Uh, the hygiene, or lack thereof, uh, the light. It's light when you don't want it to be. It's not light when you want it to be. The lack of walls. The shower blocks, everything. In fact, to be honest, I don't blame because I sort of feel much the same. You feel like you need a holiday to recover from the holiday. And that to me feels like that's been a, a sort of waste of a week. So I wonder if it would seem like, in any way, the natural answer to the people being freed from slavery in Egypt would be entering a tent in the desert. Because that's God's answer. That through this tent, he would meet with his people. That true freedom was living in this tent. God's rescue of his people has always been for the end goal of them being free to worship him. And so with the construction of this tent and the furniture and the establishment of the priesthood, Exodus draws to a close. And we have a fulfillment in part, and yet it's only a forerunner for what God would later do. If you turn to those first eight verses there in front of you, we get a glimpse of what was and what will be. I'm guessing that you might have heard this week about the Willy Wonka experience in Glasgow. It promised an enchanting experience with a very glitzy AI-generated marketing campaign and turned out to be something of a nightmare, didn't it? That left people angry and disappointed. Uh, and some, maybe this is the worst reaction. You see pictures of somebody just laughing at what they'd sort of seen. This was an experience that in no way lived up to the billing and left people angry. Well, the tabernacle here is providing an interactive experience of the presence of God that would leave you wanting more. There with me. There's a new year and a new era for the people, isn't there? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And I've got a slide for you of the tabernacles to give you some sort of sense of what that may have looked like a little bit. And over the course of this chapter, we get something of a virtual tour through the tabernacle, laid out from the most holy place outwards. And all of the things in the tabernacle and the very existence of the tabernacle, I need you to know that, that it was all symbolic of what would be. The preacher to the Hebrews later on in the New Testament says this. He says, Jesus is a minister in the holy places in the true tent. 
It's comparing and contrasting this tent here with another one. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. They serve, that is the tabernacle and everything within them, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. This tabernacle and everything in it and the priests who run it is a symbol of what will be. But it's also a symbol of what was. The construction of this tent and everything within it, the experience that it led you through, was about a restoration of the order of Eden. That peace and that presence and that shalom of Eden, for a moment, as you went through the tent and met with God, that was restored. It was a symbol of what will be, but also what was. Look at there, verse 3 in this it speaks to us about the ark, doesn't it? You shall put in it the ark of the testimony, sometimes the ark of the covenant, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And here is maybe the most important item in all of the temple. Its mercy seat on the top of it that it describes is the center point from which everything else fits. This is where God dwells. And within the ark are the memory aids of the Exodus. The manna, Aaron's staff, and the tablets. The manna, God's provision. Aaron's staff, God's rescue. The tablets, God's law, God's word. The ark is the center of religious life as the place where God dwells and the place where atonement is made, where humanity is restored to God. We know this from a little earlier in Exodus, Exodus 25, verse 22. There, that is at the ark, at the mercy seat, I will meet you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you. I said that it's a glimpse of the order and the peace of Eden. And just as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was at the center of the garden, so the law within the ark of the testimony was in the heart of the tent. And just as eating the fruit of that tree led to death, so touching the ark would lead to death also. The mercy seat on the top was made by the guard of those two angels' wings, those two cherubim, just as Eden was guarded by two cherubim after the fall. Genesis 3, verse 24, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And in just the same way, you entered this tent from the east, just as you entered the garden from the east to meet with God. From there, we're moved along to the table that holds the bread of the presence. And on that table would be 12 loaves in two groups of six, representing all the tribes of Israel. It shows God's abundant provision to his people. And alongside from that table was a lamp that illuminated the bread on that table, that highlights God's provision, that's made in the design of a tree, again in chapter 25, speaking of the lamp here, it says, there should be six branches going out of its size, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, on one branch, and three cups 
made like almond blossoms. The image is very likely recapturing the image of the tree of life, also in the middle of the Garden of Eden. And then there's incense burnt every day. There isn't there, verse 5. You should put the golden altar for incense before the Ark of the Testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. There incense is burned every day and yearly on the Day of Atonement, blood offering is made. You can read about that in chapter 30, but we don't have time this morning to go there. But all the tent and all the furniture was to recapture the beauty of Eden. And so it's lavish. We hear of all the gold, again, in common with Eden too, and the precious stones and the presence of the water there, just like Eden running with the rivers through it. These first five verses here describe the inner court. This is the place where only priests were allowed. And now verses six to eight will move out slightly to the outer court. And this is the area where all would be allowed. Verse 6, you shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. And there's two main ideas that are going on here. That there's sacrifices and there's washings. There's a sacrifice that before anyone really can enter any further sacrifices must be made. You sacrifice as you enter. It reflects the reality that humanity needs to remove God's anger for sin. But God has made a way. Make sacrifice before me. And then there's washings too, isn't there? You wash as you enter. And it reflects our need from the cleansing of the stain of sin. But again... God has made a way. Here, wash yourself, be clean. And then this courtyard marks the step out from just the land beyond it and then in towards the tabernacle before the holiness of the inner court which mirrored Eden. The tent provides an interactive reminder of what was in Eden and what would be in the new earth. There's a glimpse of what was and a glimpse of what will be. But secondly there, verses 9 to 15, we see that the people have to be prepared to meet with God. And even the tent itself needs preparation for God to enter it. We've thought before over the course of the story of Exodus that God shows himself to be a covenant maker. He makes promises with his people that he delivers But we find that the people here are covenant breakers. That we do not keep the expectations of his covenant. And so the tent here exists to restore covenant peace. And we see the tent and all the implements, the furniture and everything else anointed there, don't we? Verse 9 to 11, you should take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it. The tent is anointed for God's presence, isn't it? And I wonder if it occurs to you that actually God wouldn't need to do this. If he wants this tent to be holy, it will be holy because he says it's holy. The oil isn't actually doing anything, is it? 
It's not that suddenly you chuck olive oil over the place, that it, it does something ontologically substantially different about things. What does it do? It shows the people in a very tactile and visible way that this has been set apart. That we've done something here to make this space and us and these implements special before God. And of all those places, we're told here in verse 10, there's one that's most holy here. You shall anoint the altar of burnt offering, verse 10, and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. This is the altar where the most of the sacrifices are made and offered. This will be the most used area of all the tabernacle. And it is called most holy. It's holy, it's special, it's set apart because this is the place at which people are restored before God. Where the distance between God and humanity is closed. It's a glimpse of what was. A glimpse of what will be. The tent is anointed for God's presence. But then we see the priests are anointed for God's service. Verses 12 to 15. And the people need to see not only that the tent has been set apart for special use, but also the people who will serve within it have been set apart for God's work. And it's one particular family and tribe, isn't it? Aaron and his sons. God has elected a people. He's chosen a people to approach him and to represent the people and to restore the people and relay God's grace to the people. It tells us that anyone and everyone couldn't approach God like this. There is a certain people who have been chosen to do this on your behalf. It visualizes again the fundamental dislocation from God that we experience. That only one tribe can go in and can do this for you. You can't approach yourself. You need someone to go on your behalf. And these people, even themselves, verse 12, are not ready as they are, are they? You should bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. They're not ready as they are, are they? They must be washed. The people weren't by nature ready and able to approach God in this way. And in fact, it doesn't give us all the details here, but in Leviticus chapter 8, you can see some of the details of this ceremony because it's a seven-day-long process by which the priests are washed and sacrifices are offered alongside those washings. And here's just one excerpt from that description. Leviticus 8 verse 34. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die. The tent and the work that goes on within it doesn't work because of a special power or nature or righteousness of these priests. The priests themselves need sacrifices made for their sins too. And we could say the exact same for gospel ministers today. The work of the gospel doesn't work because there's something inherently special and different about ministers. 
The work of the priests worked because God graciously decided it would work. And that's the same for ministers today. Paul puts it like this, thinking about his own ministry. He says, Romans 1 verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is not his powers and abilities of rhetoric. It is not his intellect. It is not his inherent sort of self-righteousness that makes Paul's ministry effective. It is the power of the gospel itself. And so it is today too. They're washed, sacrifices are offered, but they're also clothed, aren't they? They're clothed with holy garments. They're anointed, they're consecrated. That is, they're set apart for good use. This, the priesthood here, is an office. And it is God's appointment. And so it's not actually the person that is upheld in the priesthood being respected. It's not really that you're doing that because of the quality and character of the person. You're upholding the office that God has made. He has given this role and it's reflected in these garments. It's reflected in them being anointed and set apart for this. The people are being reminded constantly, and we too, we are covenant breakers. We have not kept God's law. We will not keep God's law. We can't keep God's law. And blood is needed. But God has provided the means for redemption. And here it is in the tent of meeting, in the blood sacrifices, in the priesthood. And all of this serves the purpose of closing that dislocation, that gap between humanity and God. Earlier in Exodus chapter 29, we get a few more further details on this section of the tent and the priest's service there. God is speaking. He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. It is a restoration of the physical closeness of Eden, that wonderful moment where it speaks of God walking in the cool of the day, looking out for Adam and Eve to walk with them. And here is God again dwelling with his people in this tent. The tent, the furniture alongside it, the priests uh, that are established are set apart so that the tent could serve as a place of communion between God and man. They're prepared to meet with God but thirdly we see a leader who follows instruction uh, and in verses 16 to 33 we see this and you'll be relieved to know I'm really going to kind of skate over those because in a way it, it just makes the same simple point all the way through of Moses does what he's told. Hugh began the service actually by thinking about this, didn't he? About Ikea furniture. Some people absolutely can't stand making Ikea furniture. And they have no patience for it or with it. And what's the problem? Well, I don't think you have to be a particularly skilled sort of psychologist to, to work this out. The problem is, in order to do it well, you have to follow the instructions, don't you? And sometimes that's not easy because the pictures aren't always the most uh, sort of sensible. But you have to follow the instructions. I actually kind of 
tend to enjoy IKEA furniture, really. That's about my kind of level of uh, skill. And partly that reflects probably that Karis has me well-trained. That, you know, if you just do as you're told, you know, it goes well for you. So I'm actually fairly well set at that. And Moses shows here he's willing to do as he's told. And he's faithful to God's instructions, isn't he? And that's the whole purpose of this section, that Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. And eight times in those verses, that's repeated for us, as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. And actually, by the way, even the people in chapters 35 to 39 have done much the same. They can be very hit and miss, very up and down at times, can't they? But they have been obedient. And they too had done all that the Lord had commanded through Moses, we're told several times. This is a huge turnaround, by the way, isn't it? If you think of Exodus 32, where we were just a few weeks ago, and the people have completely rebelled against God and against Moses, willing to make another God and go with it and even, you know, ascribe all the work of God to this golden calf. Here the people are actually doing as they're commanded. And yet, with things having been prepared by all the people, it was now to Moses to bring this all together. And so verse 33 ties up this section by saying, so Moses finished the work. In English, that word won't mean very much to you at all. That will seem like a very straightforward sentence. But that word finished is much more loaded than it might first appear. So Moses finished the work. It's the same word that is used of God's work of creation. It's wanting to draw this parallel that here Moses, in creating this tent that God has ordered and patterned, is a new creation. That a new order of God's peace, of God's Eden, is being established here on earth. that the tabernacle, this tent, and later the temple too, was mirroring God's creative work in Eden. And yet for the tent to serve its purpose, it must be built according to God's instructions. And Moses is a leader who follows God's instruction. Fourthly, then, lastly, we see God present with his people. These verses, this chapter, is really answering quite a natural question we might have, which is how will we know that God is going with us? Last week, you have Moses debating with God and saying, if you don't go out with us, don't send us out. Don't put us in the land if you're not going to be there with us. And he was saying, how will the people around us know that you've gone with us, but that you're there? But what would that look like? And so this tells us what it will look like. Verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud representing God's presence visibly for them, just in case there was any doubt, that was settled on Mount Sinai, now settles in the tent. And the presence and the glory of God goes with them. In the tent, not up the mountain. And is closer to them. It's in the tent, not up the mountain. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's another allusion to the creation story there. In Genesis 
1, God commands the creatures of the sky and the sea to fill that space. God blessed them, it says, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. God also commanded Adam and Eve to fill the earth with children. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And now God himself is filling this new creation, this new Eden-like space, the tabernacle, the tent, with himself. And Moses, verse 35, wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is a glory that is so glorious, that is so weighty, that Moses can't even get in for seven days. Just like on the mountain. But there's more to this glory, isn't there? Look at verse 36 and 37. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. The glory will now move for the people, deciding when the tent was to move and when the body of people was to move as they moved towards the promised land. And so now not only is it visible that God's presence is there with them, but it's very clear that God's presence is leading them to where they will settle. And so the nation's conquest of the land is going to be driven and directed by the pattern of worship of God. It means as well, doesn't it, there's no special location because the tent keeps moving. So there's a particular place in any of the land that's particularly glorious it's God's glory that's moving place to place with the tent. It means that God's cloud is special wherever it rests. Moses had asked God to go with him, hadn't he? Chapter 33, verse 16 here. How shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? God had said that he would go with them, and this is how. The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all. God would provide the restoration of the relationship, direction, and a demonstration of their identity through the tent. God had saved his people to be free to worship him. That's been the story of Exodus. And the Mosaic Covenant shows how to live as God's people. God is a covenant keeper, but the people are covenant breakers. So there's a problem, isn't there, of how do we make that right? And what we see here is that God provides the means of redemption he provides the place of redemption, and he provides a liturgy of redemption. He provides the means of redemption. He provides sacrifices. He allows justice to be met and to be served, and yet for the people to go free. The sacrifices work not because they're good acts in themselves, 
but because God graciously accepts them. God provides the place of redemption, and it is the tent here. It pictures what was in Eden, and it pictures what will be in the new earth. The tent provides Israel with a dramatic, immersive, and sensory experience of God's redemption. But God provides the liturgy of redemption too. He provides the means and the actual process of patterns of worship through which they will experience God's grace. And maybe chief among them all is the Day of Atonement. And on this day, two great truths are affirmed for the people. That of expiation and propitiation. Expiation, put simply, is the cleansing of guilt of sin. And you did this in two ways. You offered a purification offering. Blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat and through the tent to cover your blood debt. The fact that you have broken God's law and rightly, justly, your blood is actually owed for that. And instead, an animal is killed in your place and offered for you. And so that punishment is not handed out on you. But it happened in a second way too. It also happened through the scapegoat. And here the sins would be loaded and physically uh, uh, named over it. You can imagine how long that process would take for everyone to do this. The scapegoat would have your sins by name put on it. And it would be sent to die in the wilderness. And that would show that not only had the punishment for sin been meted out on somebody else, but also the very shame and remembrance of your sin had been driven to the middle of the wilderness to die a death and never be seen again. But as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions. The cleansing of the guilt of sin. But it's also about the appeasing of anger for sin, propitiation. And you did this through a whole burnt offering in that altar that was called most holy just before you got to the most holy place. And there an animal is offered up after placing hands on it to recognize that it's a substitute for me. When you did the scapegoat, you put your sins on it and you named them out and it made it clear that those specific things God was dealing with. With this offering, you put your hands on it to recognize this should be me, but now is this animal. And the smoke from the offering was said to soothe the righteous anger of God against sin and restore the relationship. Now, if the story ended there, That would all be quite grand, wouldn't it? But it didn't. Because the people didn't keep the covenant. When I said about camping at the very beginning there, Karis wasn't wrong in not being happy with the tent. And God's story here ought not end in a tent. God's story ends not in a tent, but upon a cross. Because it becomes very clear very soon that there's a need for a new covenant. Hebrews chapter 9, it tells us gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper. The sacrifices dealt with the fallout of sinning, the consequences, they don't change the motivations to sin. They don't change me. It becomes clear there's a need for a new covenant. 
but God gives the promise of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, I will make a new covenant. This is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The shortcoming, if we can say it like that, of the old covenant is not the covenant itself. It is our incapability of fulfilling it. But in the new covenant, do you notice, God is the active one. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. God does what we don't do, what we won't do, what we can't do. There's a need of a new covenant. There's a promise of a new covenant. And in Jesus, we see the fulfillment of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 9. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, speaking of heaven, he entered once for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Through Jesus, everything that the tent pointed to is completely fulfilled in Jesus sacrificing himself. At the cross, our guilt for sin is cleansed. At the cross, the anger of God is placed upon Jesus. At the cross, the righteousness of Jesus is placed upon you like a priestly garment that means you can approach with boldness and confidence. And at the cross, his spirit is granted that your nature would change. Offerings that didn't perfect the conscience, now a spirit who does, from one degree of glory to another, transformed into the same likeness, Paul says. So, look to the rescue from sin offered in Jesus. Trust in the work Jesus has done for you and have hope that through Jesus' spirit you are free to worship him and you are being transformed. How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience to serve the living God? And so in response... I invite you now in the next few moments to join with me in sharing the elements together and we will physically sort of act out everything that we've thought about here, everything that we've read, the promises that we've seen. And in a tangible, physical way, tactile way, will embody faith. Hopefully as you came in, you got one of the little miracle meal things. If you didn't, if you just sort of pop your hand up, then um, John at the back there will, will come to you. Just before we come to that, why don't we pray briefly, and it's right to...